Welcome to episode 74 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, I'm talking to Chelsea Mandelo. She is the owner and creator of Troopster Care Packages. She shares how her experience of being in the Navy and being deployed and being at a place that was pretty remote meant that sometimes when the care packages got to her, they had been pretty much falling apart and either the contents were spoiled or they were missing. And so she decided that when she was still in the military, she wanted to change that and she started Troopster and I have been following her journey for the past few years, and it's really exciting to share not only about Troopster today, but her military experience in the Navy. So let's get started. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Chelsea is the founder and CEO of Troopster Military Care Package. She is a veteran of the Navy, and after graduating from Ball State University, with a BS in advertising in 2011, she joined the U.S. Navy and started working as a photojournalist where she traveled the world to provide media support and see firsthand the accomplishments and capabilities of the armed forces. It was during her experiences with the military serving across 13 countries over the course of seven years that she was inspired to establish Troopster. She has received multiple recognition awards, including the Small Business Administration Person of the Year, Entrepreneurial Excellent Award, COVA Gives Back Award, Microsoft Empowerment Possibility Award, Verizon Salute Award, and Innovator of the Year. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hey, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to get to talk with you. Yeah, me too. So we met a while ago via the internet and then in person, I guess just over a year ago at the Military Influencer Conference. And I've just been really inspired watching what you've been doing with Troopster and it's been really cool. So I'm excited to not only hear about your military story, but hear about what you're doing today. So we'll start with why did you decide to join the military? Yeah. Well, so when I joined the military, I had just graduated from Ball State University and I originally came from a military family. So I had already grown up, you know, hearing all of these great stories about the military, about these adventures and experiences that my mom had been through and that my older brother was currently going through. He actually still serves in the Air Force. And, and so I'd always just been so inspired by the military. And when I graduated, I had this vision of I wanted to see the world. And before I went straight into an advertising firm or out into the business world, I wanted to join the military, serve my country, and get to have my own adventures and experiences. And so that's what I did. And since you had your degree, did you ever consider becoming an officer or? <laughs> I, I did. Um and, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, so actually, I had been putting in my officer packet my last year uh, at college. And the gentleman who had been helping me to fill out my paperwork and who 
was working with individuals who were commissioning, uh, he actually retired and he had never put any of the documents that I'd filled out into the system. And when I went back after he had retired and I graduated, they couldn't find any of my paperwork. And so it was a little deterring, but I was also just so excited. I just wanted to join that I figured, well, I'll just join really easily as an enlisted and I'll transfer laterally over. I did not realize at the time how difficult that actually was. Otherwise, I would have just re-gone through the process of commissioning. Did someone give you the advice that you can just enlist and then cross over? Or was that just something you thought would be easy to do? No, someone had given me the advice that I could just transfer laterally really easily. And the person who had told me that was at a completely different recruiting station back home. So I went to school up north in uh, near Indianapolis, Indiana. And so I had traveled back home and it was in one of the smaller recruiting stations that someone had told me that, and that's why I had ended up just going enlisted uh, and then thinking that I could transfer over. I feel like I've heard that people have been told that advice more than once, so I don't know if it's like a wives' tale that people believe or something that they just, it's kind of weird because it's like, it's not as easy as just, you know, it's not an easy switch. Yeah, not at all. You know, someone who doesn't actually have an experience with the military yet, I fully believed it. So it was just kind of one of those, you know, recruiter horror stories that you hear about. And, you know, after I had gotten in and I had figured out, oh, this really isn't that easy. Uh, I was putting in my officer packet for officer candidate school. And it was about the time that I was completing my packet and putting it in that actually I started my company. So, you know, in the long run, I, I think it really worked out. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your Navy experience. So you went to boot camp and then where did you go? So boot camp, uh, I actually had a lot of fun in boot camp and probably one of the very few people who had a good time in boot camp. (laughs) Well, in in one sense and another, I had a difficult experience that happened, but at the same time, I gained uh, quite a lot of friends in boot camp. And right after um, I had gone through boot camp with three or four people who were actually going to be in my same rating, uh, which was mass communication specialist. So in boot camp, I had already made friends who were going to be in the same rating. We rolled straight from boot camp to Fort Meade, Maryland, which is where the Defense Information School is located. And the training for mass communication specialists was another experience where I thought it was a lot of fun. You are there to learn how to be a photojournalist for the military, which, you know, I had already come in thinking that that is so cool. Uh, Here was this very creative writing that I never knew the military had. So it was just very neat for me that you could be a journalist, you could be a photographer, you could go to an extra schooling and be a graphic designer, you could learn web design. And in this school, we just started to learn the basics of graphic illustration, of graphic design learned how to be photographers. And at the end of the coursework, we would go on this three or four day experience where we, as a class of maybe about 25, hiked out to this kind of campground area. And we all had cameras that were issued to us. And during this camping experience, we would be separated in different groups. And 
there was, you know, one experience where half of us were given paintball guns and the other half of us had our cameras and we had to document a mock battle. And so we're going through and we're taking these photos. And and then after, you know, an hour, we would switch places and then we would get to use the paintball guns. And it was really just kind of a letting off steam, but then also learning how to quickly adapt what we had learned over this seven month training period. And just overall, the overall coursework I thought was was a great deal of fun. I mean, it taught you the principles and the basics of being a photojournalist. And then they put it into a fun training environment uh, that you could actually make it applicable. That sounds really interesting and really cool. And I think that sometimes people don't realize all the different opportunities there are in the military. And that sounds like something that could easily transfer into the civilian world. And all that training was invaluable. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You're right about that. Uh, and actually, a few years later, I did end up going back to Dimphos and I had received my illustrator degree, well, illustrator certificate. So now I am a certified graphics illustrator. You know, the knowledge that I gained from that entire program, from my career in the military, it really has helped me in the civilian world. That's cool. So where did you go after you finished? Well, I would call it tech school. I don't know what the Navy calls it. Uh, Yeah, we call it A school. A school. Mm -hmm. So where did you go after A school? Yeah, so I put in my dream sheet, and I think that everyone in the Navy puts those beautiful Navy coastal bases. So I think we all had Hawaii on, on our dream sheets, and we all had Spain, and we all had, you know, Japan, or just something really interesting. And I, like many, received orders to Norfolk, Virginia, uh, which Norfolk has the largest naval base in the world. So it's a very large naval population, and that's where my first set of orders were two, and it was for a command called Navy Public Affairs Support Element. So this was kind of Big Navy's journalist portal. This is where journalists went to tell the overarching story of the Navy. And that was my first billet. That's where I headed to. In the bio, it talked about how you went to 13 countries in seven years. So Obviously, you deployed and left the United States. How quickly from when you got to Norfolk and you got settled, did you go on your first deployment? Very fast. The turnaround time between getting to my first command to going out on my first deployment was a matter of weeks. I arrived in Norfolk, got enough information to get my IDs, the base parking passes, which at the time we were being issued uh, to get an apartment. And then very soon after that, I had my first set of orders out of NPACE, and it was to Japan. So we loaded up myself and a squadron of three or four other journalists, and we donned our sea bags, and we headed off to Japan. And from there, I really bounced around from a multitude of different platforms. And it was really in support of ships that were forward deployed out of the 7th Fleet. So we transitioned from large amphibious decks, uh, such as the Bonhomme Richard, uh, to smaller deck platforms that were smaller amphibs, uh, to the USS Tortuga, which is a smaller deck 
And then from there, I was just really kind of bouncing between ships where I would stay on one ship for three or four months uh, while I was deployed. Then I would go to one of the other ships that was part of that uh, amphibious ready group, which is called an ARG, uh, A-R-G, it's amphibious ready group. And I would try to capture the different stories and photos from each perspective ship. That was my first deployment. But I say first, really, with the nature of our job and with being maybe public affairs, it wasn't a typical deployment where you would go out with one ship, come back, stay in port for a year or two, and then go back out. For us, we would come back in for a couple of weeks and then go right back out with a new ship or a new squadron and be right back on deployment. So I ended up developing uh, quite a lot of sea time, (laughs) really. And so were you ended up being based out of Japan or did you come back to the States for a couple of weeks and then? Yeah, so I came back. Uh, I ended up being in the Seventh Fleet area for I think about eight or nine months. Also, while I was over there, went to a sub tender called the MRS Land uh, and that was out of Guam. Um, and then while I was in that area, I had also gone through Malaysia and just a few other bases and ships over there. So that's how deployment was for me, where I would go to a command or a ship, and then I would go to a new one. So when I did come back from Japan, I stayed for a little bit and then turned right around and went to the Fifth Fleet area of operations, which is the Mediterranean area. That's where you have the Strait of Hormuz, you have Jordan, Oman, uh, you have Greece, you have United Arab Emirates, anything, you know, that's in and around uh, the Mediterranean by way of the Atlantic. Wow. So you saw a lot of the world. I did. I really, I always joke that the military got its money's worth out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I really did get to see the world. I mean, I got to travel and I think that I had one of the best jobs in the military because it was creative, it was fun, it it always transitioned, there were different aspects of it. So I do think that I was very blessed in that situation. And do you have any like memories or stories that you got to write about during that time that stick out or? Uh, Yes, there's a couple. So with one of the ships, I believe it was the Tortuga, we went to... Uh, city in Malaysia. And high in the the mountains of Malaysia, there was this, not quite an orphanage, but it was kind of a hospital orphanage where the nuns or nurses there would take in children who were from surrounding villages in Malaysia. And these children had been brutalized. Several of them were missing limbs. Several of them had been burned uh, either by just very terrible situations, you know, that had taken place in the villages or conflicts that had happened or parents. So just a, a lot of background for these kids where they had all faced something very, very traumatic. And this location was, it took us, uh, I seem to think, almost three hours to reach I was way off the beaten path and it was a little difficult to find and you were just driving on these dirt roads for hours and you're going higher and higher and climbing and climbing and we're on this bus and going higher and higher and we're in 
kind of this tropical jungle. And all of a sudden, here's this sanctuary for these children. And, you know, these children are anywhere from infants all the way up to 10, 11 years old. There were dozens of them. And we got off this bus and there were only maybe about 15 of us coming from the ship. And our only job was to just be there, just to love them and have fun with them and play games with them. And it was such an amazing community relations experience where these kids, I mean, even though they had these just tremendously difficult things happen to them, the moment they saw us, they just wanted to play and they just wanted to hug us. And, and I mean, one girl came up and she grabbed my hand and she took me over and they had monkeys there. And, and so she wanted to show me the monkeys and then she wanted to color. And we spent hours just playing and loving these kids. And it was just such an amazing experience. And I loved writing the story and taking the photos about it. It's called the healing hearts, I seem to think, but it was just, it was one of those stories and those moments that I will always remember. It had such an impact on me. Yeah, that sounds like quite the experience. And it's kind of interesting that the Navy, like, had you guys do that as a humanitarian mission just to go and spend time with the kids and play with them. And it's so important, but I think sometimes we think, oh, that's not really that important. But to those kids, I bet it was life-changing, just like it was for you. Right. It meant the world to them. I mean, you could see it on their faces that it just, it meant so much to them and it meant a lot to us. Wow. What a good story. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I'm very fortunate. I had a great job that afforded me the ability to see just the variety of aspects that the military participates in. And, you know, a lot of times Americans see or or envision the military as just being overseas in some desert area fighting a war. When really we're doing so much more than that. We're doing so many different things just all around the world. Yes, we are in volatile areas and we are still protecting our nation's freedoms, but we're also still out there trying to help other countries, trying to help other citizens. And we're just, we're always trying to make such a profound impact on the world. And it's, and I'm really glad to get to share that with you. And now a word from our sponsor. Do you want to lose weight but feel like you don't have enough time to be healthy? Are you stressed about passing weigh-ins or your fitness test? Hi, my name is Ashley McGee, and I'm a health coach for women in the military community. As a Navy woman myself, I know the unique challenges we face when trying to lose weight and get healthy. I offer one-on-one coaching to help you make small habit changes that will help you achieve big results. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email at admin at ashleymcgee.com and I will reach out to see if we're a fit. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's really cool. So you deployed and you traveled all over the world and it sounds like you had a really cool job. Did you have any struggles while serving in the military? I did, yes. Uh, In about 2013, I was on board my seventh ship. I had actually, I just crossed over to take the place of someone who had to quickly depart uh, as the squadron's LPO. 
So I was being flown over to take their place. And, you know, it was a larger deck ship. Um, so I'd come from a smaller deck and it was a larger amphib, but it was one that I'd been on before. I'd been on larger deck amphibs, so I had already known my way around. And by then I, I knew my job pretty well. As a squadron, we are there not to be a part of ship's company. Our role is to tell the big story of the military and the ship photographers and the ship journalists are there to cover any aspects that are taking place on board the ship. So I had been sent over to be the lead petty officer, LPO, of my squadron of photojournalists, which there were only two or three of us. And when I got on board, it was already somewhat of a different situation where somehow, for some reason, we had been integrated with the ship's other journalists. Um, And so that was already a bit of a different situation. I quickly noticed that a lot of the service members who were in this division were were just immensely unhappy and didn't quite grasp why. So I get on board and I just, I just start going. I know my job. I know what I'm supposed to do. And so I just get there and immediately start finding stories to write, finding photos to take. And I put myself to work. And Shortly thereafter, I was introduced to the lead chief petty officer of the division. And it was a a gentleman who unfortunately did not strike the professional chords that you would hope for. He was an individual who had a, a very volatile temperament. He would come into the division. He would throw laptops on the ground. He would throw $200 headphones into the ground. I mean, he would just come in screaming and ranting and raving at this division, which there were about 10 of us and I was the second oldest person. So a lot of the individuals that were in there were kids. I mean, essentially, now they were over 18. They were you know 18 and 19, but this was their first deployment. And This was their first experience to the military. And I just remember being so shocked that here was this individual who was acting like this. And he would just go into these tirades. And he was just a very reactionary individual. And so I started documenting when these outbursts would happen what the situations were. And I noticed just a bit of a pattern where he would just place blame on these junior sailors. He would have them cleaning as punishment, or he would have them staying, you know, way later than they needed to in the office. And it really, after seeing all these things that he was doing, it no longer surprised me why none of the journalists that were there wanted to do their job. I mean, they come to work, they were stressed. One of the individuals told me that a majority of the office was on antidepressants. So it was just a very, very stressful situation. Uh, So I ended up documenting everything and I took it to my officer, my squadron officer, which remember again, normally we shouldn't even be in that office. Normally we would be separate from that office would be there telling the big story, but somehow this chief had negotiated or worked it out with the officer to where he would be in charge of us and we would work for him to write accompanying ship stories and take photos. 
Um, but so I went to the officer of my squadron because in my eyes, that's who was in charge of us, was my squadron leader, my squadron officer, not ship's company chief. So I took this to my officer and I said, sir, this is what is going on. Here's a record of everything that I've collected. I really think that we need to be separated from this and something needs to be reported. And, you know, he was very polite. He said, I understand. This is the first I've heard of that. Thank you so much. And I left with that thinking, you know, all is well. And the next thing I know, here comes the chief calling me into his office because our squadron officer had gone to him to let him know. Uh, so I get called in this chief's office and just <laughs> absolutely, he, you know, just threw me to the, to the wall, not literally, but, but it's, right. yeah, it just tore me to pieces. So I, I stuck for myself. I said, sir, you should not be acting this way. This is not a professional environment. I don't think this is right. And he let me go with warning. And over the next couple of weeks, it was more of the same. Nothing really had changed. So I continued to document it. I continued to write everything down. And this time, when I went back to my officer, I brought someone with me. I brought one of the junior sailors who, again, this was their first deployment. I had tried to tell them this is not what the Navy is like. This is not how leadership should be. And I, I brought them with me. But when the time came, they were too afraid to say anything. They ended up asking if they could not speak to the officer because they just wanted to get through deployment uh, and put it behind them. And, you know, I, I couldn't fault them for that. At the time, I, I tried so hard just to convince them to fight. By then, you know, they'd been on the ship way longer than me, and the fight was kind of already out of them. So I couldn't force them to do anything along those lines. So I went in and spoke to the officer myself. And I said, sir, this is still taking place. This is what's happened in the most recent events. This is how this individual acted. And again, uh, he sent me right back down to the chief. So it, it was just this mindset. I quickly learned that maybe I can't trust my squadron officer. Maybe he doesn't have our best interests in mind. So... I, I was still willing to fight. I was still willing to try and, and fix this situation to course correct. And I ended up going uh, to see someone from the ship. I went to, uh, I believe they were a senior chief uh, on board the ship, but they were someone that was supposed to be uh, there to help you if you needed to report something, if you needed to to, to fix something, some wrong that you were seeing. And so I went to this individual and I again brought all of my records and I said, hi, I'm part of the squadron. This is what's been happening over the past couple of months that I've seen. And I lay everything out. And after I put all of the information out there, this person leans back in his chair and he says, you know, this chief, he's on his way out. He's going to be leaving soon. This is his last deployment. So how about we just get through the deployment and then you're part of a squadron anyway. So you're not really going to be part of the ship and you're going to get to leave soon anyway. So how about you just put it behind you and just let me know anytime things happen. And I remember leaving the office and just feeling the ultimate defeatism. 
I had this image of the military as, as this professional environment where if you worked hard and you did the right things, that you progressed in your job and your career, you were there to uphold American standards and just to create this environment. And that if there was any wrongdoing, there were measures that would be taken and good would win. And yet I left this office and it was like my last ditch effort. And it seemed as though no one cared. No one at any level had not just my back, but no one cared about those junior sailors who were in that office who were being tormented. I mean, they hated their life. They hated being there and no one was looking out for them. And I, I felt like I had tried so hard to bring this to light and yet no one cared. And so I really hit such a low point of just, I, I didn't know what to do. And I remember going into a fan room, uh, which is, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's a small room <laughs> uh, where it's like an empty room that isn't really utilized and just going in there and sobbing because I, I didn't know what to do. It was that moment that I, I really kind of gave up on a lot. And it's kind of interesting how things work out because it was around that exact same time that I had, uh, <laughs> I had received the care package from my mom that ultimately led to me starting this company. But just the, the emotions that, that were going through me at that time was made life so hard. And I was in the office the next day after I'd tried my last ditch and, and feeling completely defeated. And the chief comes in and he looks at me and he says, I need to have this graphic illustration done. And that was something that he would do where he would come in to the office, pull someone out, and he would want something right away immediately. No matter what you were doing, you had to drop it. You know, if it was a photo, a story, just right away. And then if you couldn't get it in time, because if the, if the timeline wasn't able to be met, then you knew you were going to have to face him later. And it's just a very stressful situation. But at that time, I, gosh, I just did not care. I was finished with the military at that moment. And he comes rolling in, says, I need this illustration and I need it now. And I, I essentially told him that I wasn't going to do it. And he goes storming out of the office and the very, and this was a very against my character. I mean, that's the thing. I, I had always been such a hard charger to that point. I would do my own thing. I would write my own stories. I was a self-starter. And this was completely against my character. And this was against my nature. And the next day at cleaning stations, the officer of my squadron, who I hadn't seen since you know, the last time I tried to report the chief, he comes and he says, hey, I've, I've heard you, you've had a bit of trouble. We're going to move you to the library and you don't have to work for the rest of the, the deployment. <laughs> and we still had probably three months left in this deployment. And I, I was so broken and I was staring at him and I was thinking, if you have to hide someone away and you have to give them put them in a place where they no longer have to work. You have to know that something is wrong. Like you, you have to know. 
And it was just, it was crazy. Oddly enough, I loved the library. I mean, I, I felt, oddly enough, I loved working in the library. But it just, that entire time period had such a dramatic shift for me. But in such a weird way, it was also that time that I started my company, Troopster. And it was, it was the same time period where you know my morale was so low and I just wanted to try and take care of people. I wanted to take care of these kids that I knew were having a hard time and, and I had tried everything and I couldn't do it. I wasn't succeeding. And I got this care pack from my mom and uh, I was already, my morale was so low and I had opened this pack up and everything in it had gone bad. I mean, she'd sent me like chocolates and she'd sent me baked goods. And that was like my final straw. I burst into tears because it just felt like absolutely everything in the universe was against me. And it was then, a, you know, a week or so later that I ended up in the library. It was this final straw that made me want to take action. And so it was getting this care pack and it was because of these events that I just, I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do something because I have to do something. I have to engage somehow. And if I can't win on the ship, I'm, I'm going to do something else. And so that was when I ended up starting Troopster was because I didn't want anyone to ever feel the way that I was feeling. I wanted someone like my mom to be able to send a care package or someone like, like someone else's mom to be able to get that pack out. And for an individual who might be having as difficult a time as I was to get that care pack and have everything in it be great. And since, you know, the next couple of months, I wasn't going to be working <laughs> on my normal things. You know, I started daydreaming about, okay, well, how could I do this? How could, how could this take place? How could this happen? And a couple of years later, you know, with some stroke of luck and some more daydreaming, I launched Troopster. <laughs> That's crazy. And I think when you're talking about the care packages and like you were really down and when people think about care packages, they think, oh, and then everything, you know, gets uplifted because you get a care package and everything is great. But like you said, everything was so old or rotten and it just you had to throw it all away and then you felt even more conflicted and upset. Right. Yeah. It was just, you know, and, and it happens a lot more often than you think. And it's tough to put a care package together. You know, it's very stressful. For those who are back home, it takes a lot of time. You have to run around. You have to grab the items. And a lot of times you lump it in with your usual shopping. And sometimes you just don't think about the items that you put in. Sometimes, I mean, obviously sometimes there's a lot of thought that goes into it, but they're not necessarily items that'll make the trip. Right. And then you have to find a post office and then you get to the shipping, which is always going to be really expensive. And then there's customs forms. Um, so even the shipping process and, and making and sending a care pack can be stressful. And, you know, I knew that when I got that pack and I didn't want to tell my mom that it wasn't anything other than great. Yeah, because, yeah. I've helped friends and I've sent pair of packages and you're right. Even deploying, I would still be like, okay, what should I send in the care package? Because you like aren't in their situation and then you're like, want to get the right things. And then it is a lot of work. You have to get all the things. You have to get the box. You have to go to the post office and the forms are not easy. 
So yeah, all those things are really hard. Mm -hmm. This was my solution. This was me trying to impact what I could, trying to make any situation that I thought should be easier. I mean, this was my way of taking action. So what exactly did you do? When did you launch Troopster? And then what happened next? Yeah, so uh, I actually, I waited until I got to shore duty. Uh, so you, you rotate from sea to shore in the Navy. Um, and I waited until I knew I wasn't going to be deploying out on a ship. Because I thought, if I'm going to be fulfilling these packs, uh, I need to make sure that I have some stability, that I'm here all the time, uh, that I can actually do this. So for two years, from 2013 to 2015, that was when I was really planning everything. I had never even considered starting a business, right? That, like that never occurred to me at all when I was in college. I tell you what, if it had, I would have paid so much more attention to my business classes. Like <laughs> that would have happened. I would have paid more attention to my economics teacher, to everything that I, every class that I took in the business program but I hadn't. So I was figuring this out as I went. So I collected, you know, starting, starting a business for dummies book and I printed off. I couldn't even tell you how many pages from the small business administration. And just those two years was me trying to figure it out, putting together a business plan, just really learning on the go. I would take lunch breaks and over lunch, I would just be reading, what is a business license? What kind of entity do you want to be? Do you want to be an LLC or a sole proprietorship? Or should you become a corporation? And I, I was just trying to learn as much as I absolutely could. Because it was scary. You know, like it's exciting to daydream about something, but then it's really scary to actually push go. And mm -hmm. I had started doing this and... I had ended up using all of my leave. I took all of my leave so that I could create the websites, so that I could start putting products on the website. And when the time came, I had used all of my leave without even realizing it to start this company that I didn't have enough leave to go home for Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> so I'm on the phone with my mom and it's Thanksgiving day. And we're talking and I'm wishing her a happy Thanksgiving. And the conversation just kind of rolls over into Troopster. And I talk to her about it and I say, you know, I, oh, I've just spent so, so much time putting all of these things on. I think it's ready, but there's still so many other things that I need to do. And it's not perfect. And she said, Chelsea, it's never going to be perfect. If you wait for everything to be perfect, that time is never going to come and you're never going to launch. So you might as well just go on ahead and push the launch button because what is the worst that could happen? And, you know, I got to thinking about it and I said, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. Here I go. I'm going to do it. And on the phone with her, I opened up my store uh, and I press launch. So Thanksgiving Day 2015, Troopster officially became live. That's cool. And that's, I think that's really important business advice because it's very true that you can get stuck in the like pre-launch phase of doing a business and like, oh, well, this isn't right. And this is needs to be done and da, da, da. And you can just make a list of like a thousand things and never hit that launch button. 
And I'm kind of a weird person because I'm an action person. So I kind of like just do stuff. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I should have like slowed down and like done some research. But even with, so with the podcast, I tried to like have a plan. And that kind of got me into a point where it was really hard to hit launch because I was learning. And like you said, there's so much to do. And then I was like, well, I didn't get this done. But yeah, you have to just start and then course correct along the way so you hit launch on thanksgiving 2015 and let's fast forward to where you are now yeah so i've learned a lot uh and you know i'm still learning we celebrated our fourth birthday in november and we have sent more than 7,000 care packages to troops deployed across more than 20 countries We have helped thousands of military families, military spouses, moms and dads to send personalized care packages. And then we also do donation packages. So it's just grown (laughs) immensely. I mean, I just, I love my job. Every day we get to help someone send a personalized pack to someone who's deployed overseas. And it's just, sometimes I can't believe how, how far it's come. Yeah, it's been really cool to watch. And I got to make a pack at the last Military Influencer Conference. And it was really cool because it was so easy to do because you had everything set up for us. And it was just nice to be able to give back in such an easy way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. And that's something we try to do. We work with, you know, organizations, conferences, businesses all across the nation. And we essentially take care of everything. So if businesses want to sponsor 200 care packages, then we will bring content items, we will bring the care packages, we will take care of shipping, we will do everything and we will just show up with all of the items so that it is easy. You can have that hands-on experience and impact the morale of someone deployed. So I'm glad you had fun. I did. Yeah. And what if I was someone whose spouse was deployed or my child was deployed? What would be the best way for me to get in contact with you and send a care package of my own to my own loved one? Yeah. So the best way to do that is to visit our site, which is www.troopster.org. And from there, they can pick from more than 60 pre-made kits. We have them broken down into different branches. They can grab a pack that they like, and then they can personalize it from there. They can add photos, write a letter. Um, They can even add more items to it. And then they just put in the address. Shipping is free. And they just press send. And then we actually have a staff who are veterans, who have been deployed, who know what it's like, who do all of the running around, packing and shipping for you. That's really awesome and such a great resource that people, it's not surprising that it's taking off because it's a needed resource. So it's awesome that you're doing that. I have one last question because I ask everyone this question, but what would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? I think so for women If you're considering joining the military, I think that you need to try and seek out a mentor first. Seek someone who is a female, who has been in the military, who can help guide you. Because I think that if you're coming in and you're just picking a job, 
and you're just going in kind of blindly, it can lead to a lot of issues. But if you have a mentor who can help guide you, who can say, okay, what are your interests? Do you have a degree in this field? Are you afraid of (laughs) swimming? They can help you really decide, pick a branch, try to find a job. They can be your advocate. Because sometimes when you go in and you're at the recruiting station, you're at the recruiters, if you don't know then it can just lead to so many issues later on down the road just because you didn't know. So if you have that advocate and you have that mentor, they can really help to guide you. They can be there with you at the recruiting station. They can talk shop as it would be to the recruiter and be your advocate saying, no, this is what they want to do. This is what would really help. And I think that that's something that I would recommend to girls who want to join the military. It's funny that you say that because that is like my big passion project that I'm working on right now because I mentored an airman and I didn't realize how important it was to help her because she actually got some bad advice from the recruiter that, well, not bad advice. He didn't do paperwork that he should have done, but I didn't even know that paperwork needed to be done. And so I'm currently working on a book called A Girl's Guide to the Military, and I'm hoping that I can use this resource to help women decide like what branch they should join, officer enlisted, all the questions. I keep making a list of more questions <laughs> that need to be added to it. But I also really think not only for women who are joining, but women veterans who are no longer in, it would be a great way to tie the two communities together. So if you're listening and you're looking to join the military and you want to mentor, just email me. And I'll put all my links in the show notes if you want to contact me. And that way we can partner people together. Because I think for me, it's been really healing to help this young airman. And I've learned a lot and I've seen how much she needs help because she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And even I don't know some of the answers to her questions. I think that's great advice. (laughs) And I agree. I think everyone. And that's also why the podcast exists, because then you can hear from different women and their experiences and their stories and the different branches. So yeah, I think that's great. Thank you so much for telling your story, telling about your time in the military, telling about what you're doing today. I really have enjoyed listening to you share your experience and just learning more about what you're doing. Yeah, Amanda, thank you again so much for having me on. And I think that's awesome what you're doing with the book. That's really something that's needed. And truly, if there's any way that I can help you spread the word for that, I would love to be an advocate for you. So that that's just wonderful that you're doing that. I'll keep you on the loop yeah. for sure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. 